One of Christmas' most beautiful hymns. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that as we contemplate your healing touch on our person and our relationships, that you could do what no one else could do, that your spirit would be here to teach and to transform. I pray, Lord, for the hope that only you can give, and I pray for the strength to make the journey that you lead in. And I ask now, Lord, that as a group, the fragrance of your spirit among us would become more and more evident as we leave this place. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. We've just begun a sermon series on healing entitled The Healing Presence of Jesus. And this morning I want to make a journey into the emotional and relational ability of Jesus to touch and transform, to grow us. You know, the very essence of who we are is shaped by how we see ourselves. It's shaped by who loves us and by what we love and who we love. But love is exactly what's under attack in our modern day society. The experience, the definition, and the living out of it. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. When we come to signs of the end of the age, it's interesting that Paul will write to the young pastor and tell him what the social diseases of the end of time will be. We're not immune from these diseases, and we ought to be able to let the Spirit diagnose according to His willingness to kindly point out where we might be trending or maybe where the rootage of our life might be gaining its sustenance. Second Timothy chapter 3 says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And perhaps the crowning evil is verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. I'm going to read a paragraph or two out of a book entitled A Place for Truth. It says, 40 to 50% of people, our people in the church, in this case he writes every Sunday morning, 80%, according to Gallup, when he surveys, consider themselves Christians. But for so many people, attending church doesn't seem to make much of a difference. Whether or not they're keeping their marriage vows, seeking justice for the poor, caring for the environment, struggling against racism. How on earth is the most Christian nation among the most violent, has the largest per capita prison population, the highest divorce rate in human history? Half of our kids live in broken homes. We're doing to our children what no society in human history 
has ever done to its kids. Social dysfunction is in an escalating pattern which even the secular cannot deny. Talk to the employer, talk to the teacher, talk to the policeman, talk to the social worker, talk to the counselor, talk to the therapist. We are living in an age in which there is a dreaded blight on our very person and our relationships. So I begin this message with this quote from Gospel Workers. She writes, a formal religion is to be dreaded. I want this emblazoned in your minds. The last thing I want is for our Seventh-day Adventist people to be included in Gallup's poll and the last chapter of A Place for Truth where it appears that a profession of connectiveness is all that's there. A profession. No power, no transformation, no liberation, no security, no sanctuary, no functionality. A formal religion is to be dreaded. Coming to church is a religious activity. It is not a transforming connection. It has the ability to bridge the gap between distance and connection, but it does not have the power by itself to liberate you from the things that are wanting to be unleashed inside of you by this age of liberty, license, and self-destruction. We're living in an age where nothing's wrong except telling somebody something's wrong. And if you think we're immune from that as, as people because we meet inside these walls, it's time to stop and take a serious recalibration of what the gospel actually does. The gospel actually transforms people and creates new communities of liberty and freedom and health. A formal religion is to be dreaded. Why? She answers the question, for it is no savior. And this is the advice she gives to pastors. Plain, this is, now she's gonna describe how you talk to people. Preaching, plain, close, searching, practical discourses were given by Christ. His ambassadors should follow in his example in every discourse. Some enter the ministry, now she's going to diagnose the problem. Some enter the ministry without deep love to God or their fellow man. So why'd they go into the ministry? Selfishness and self-indulgence will be manifested in the lives of such and while these unconsecrated, unfaithful watchmen are serving themselves instead of feeding the flock and attending to their pastoral duties, the people perish for want of proper instruction. We came to church here today to encounter the living God. We came to church here today to find encouragement from each other. We came in church here today to find encouragement from God. We came to church here today because we know it's right. But is coming here to church today the largest sum of our identity dynamics with Christ? 
was listening to the radio yesterday. Interesting piece came on. Alicia Chang was talking with Ashley Williams, a behavioral scientist at Harvard's Business School. And the question they were wondering is why many people who care deeply about the climate don't really adopt climate-friendly behaviors. And so they studied an airport that had nearly 80,000 employees. Now you know this is a big airport. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to get people to carpool, to ride to work together. The problem was the airport offered free parking. And it appeared that almost every intervention they made was powerless to overcome the people's desire to go to work in their own car by themselves, park in their own place, etc. We made carpooling really easy by matching people with other employees who live really close to them. We even offered free transit passes. Who doesn't like free stuff? Alicia Chang laughs. Yeah, yeah. And what we found is that none of these interventions had any meaningful impact. So it's a failed experiment, you could say, but they had a very interesting observation. They started talking about social science. We're also trying to move away from this social focus on carpooling. Most carpooling apps in an organization are like, hey, carpooling is a way to get to know your fellow colleagues. And this next sentence is why I was attracted to the the piece so much. Because this is what Williams, the British, or I should say the, the Harvard social scientist says. Really, what we're actually finding is the last thing you want to do at 7.45 in your morning on your way to work is have a colleague talk to you. They laughed too. Emotional and social healing. I need to tell you something. The less you share in common, well, I should say it this way, Being friendly and social takes more work than it used to take. It takes more work to come to church than it used to take. Because the less we share as a common thought or truth or cause, the less we share as a common experience, and the less common love we have for a central figure in our life, in this case Christ, the more work it is to socialize. So don't come except to church. And you might be able to sneak in and sneak out. But every way the devil can find to divide us and take away our common cause and our common belief system makes socializing more like play acting. And who wants to play act around anybody? It's very uncomfortable. But pressing through the desert of disconnect requires a common love, a common mission, a common cause to get through the common discomfort of going from being strangers to friends. But a lot of people don't want to do it. Yeah, we all laugh. Who wants to talk to your colleague at 7.45 in the morning? 
especially if you just barely rolled out of bed in time to wake up and make yourself look presentable and you used a cup of coffee to get you going. Yeah, you don't feel like being friendly with anybody. But you know, if you could go to bed on time with Jesus and dread that formal religion and he could be the centerpiece of your life and you could wake up and be with Jesus and not need the artificial stimulants and not stayed up so late watching the late night show and laughing at things that aren't funny, and medicating yourself with a peace that doesn't last, you might be able to be up in the morning and actually think that riding to work with somebody is an opportunity to build one of the most precious things there is to build in life. And that is a friendship. That is a connection for Christ. The Bible says, how can two walk to letter, together unless they be agreed? Amos 3.3. 3. The truth of the matter is, we don't even know what we agree and don't agree on, and the devil's throwing out more to disagree on all the time. So hanging out with you means I need to be careful what I say and how I act. Unless the way I act when I'm with you is the way I act when I'm not with you. And that is I'm being motivated by a love for Christ, and my behavior is such that this fountain of affection, this fountain of love is flowing through me. And yes, we all have different temperaments, Remember, you're talking to somebody whose mother never thought he'd be in this role. We all have different temperaments. And for some of us, being with people is more work. But is there enough love to overcome that desert of disconnect to where we could actually start to feel comfortable with each other and go beyond that, feel a sense of obligation and care for each other? The devil's trying to tear us apart. And the more apart we get, the more his agenda can be advanced. There's no real opposition to the inroads of evil when God's people aren't vitalized in a walk with him and vitalized in a love for each other. It takes a lot of unity to stand up to a societal tidal wave that's looking to wash over all of our values and our family connections and everything else. It's super important that Christ is in our heart and that we are spending time with Jesus. When I was a boy, I'd go over and see my grandpa. My grandpa was a veteran of both, well, he was a veteran of World War II in both the Navy and the Army. So I was a little bit familiar with part of his journey. I mean, we didn't have a lot of social clubs in my little town growing up, but on the way out of town, headed to Pekin, there was a tan brick building. It's called the Amvets building. They'd gather together and drink beer and smoke cigarettes. They held something in common. Some of them had heard the whine of the Japanese kamikaze fighters. My, my grandfather was a cook in the Navy on a light cruiser. Some of them had gone to bed at night knowing there were submarines not far away and that at any moment in time they could hear the sirens and their boats go off and they'd be rushing to the surface not knowing whether or not they were firing a gun or putting on a life jacket or whatever it might be. They shared a common experience. They had a common cause, which was to protect us, to protect the future, to protect the nation. And along the way, they formed bonds. They got past. They depended on each other for life and death. 
And yet we inherit a society with so much sacrifice and we can't sacrifice to press through the desert of disconnect with God, with each other. But we have to. Take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Luke. We must. If we'd like to retain a semblance of the beauty of being a part of God's family in a liberty-loving country, there's things that we're called to do and they require togetherness. Luke chapter 19, FaceTime. It's a story of Zacchaeus, the greedy little man. Zacchaeus, Jesus' life is coming to a rapid close. His last journey through Jericho. It says verse 1, he entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. How does the song go? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. Why? For I'm going to your house today. There's a few things we need to know about this story. Jesus wasn't just passing through Jericho. If you want to draw close to somebody, you're going to have to pass their way. Some don't even like getting together with their family. And of course, you just had a family potential two weeks ago, and you've got another one two weeks in the future. And sometimes being with some of your family is not very pleasant. But that doesn't mean you don't need to be there. It's the same with this church. Our social events are not simply for the old and the peripheral and the marginal. You have to pass that way if you want to pass through the desert of disconnect to meaningful social engagement, to meaningful relationships, to social healing. It is so important that this church is vitalized with a strong social bond because without the kind of unity of feeling, thought, and action, we are less than a David against a Goliath. We're a David at our best, but we're less than a David when we're not united. There's a social healing that will never take place inside our church. Divide over anything you want to divide over. The latest is an argument over how ministry works relative to gender. There's plenty of ministry for both genders out there. Amen? Go to work. But dividing over it is one more certainty that the devil will have one last formidable foe to stand up against him as he tries to roll over society. When we press together, when we pass the way of our brothers and sisters, we are giving ourselves the chance to be bonded to them in excess to the strain on the relationship. If you're going to pass that way, you have a chance of breaking through the desert of disconnect. But you've got to make a choice. Social healing 
social community, the development of oneness, the ability to solve our problems inside of our own community requires a lot of love. You gotta go when you don't feel like going. You gotta listen when you've been listened out. You're talking to a person who has a good little bit of melancholy inside of him. I didn't morph over the years into anything. God grew me into a man with an expanded heart because the love of God motivated me to do what I needed I needed to do. And slowly, God expanded my heart and gave me a deep capacity to care and along the way made me an instrument of healing for individuals, for churches, for schools. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree. Nobody else knew Zacchaeus was up there. If you're going to be an agent for social healing, you're going to have to see what nobody else sees. You say, Pastor, he was a thief. He was a cheater. He was a liar. Are you rearranging the facts? No. I'm simply waiting the potential future with Christ as bigger than the identifiers of the present. Christians see people not as they are, but they see people as they can become. They know that love is the best chance to open up a locked heart. Ellen White writing says, we should all become witnesses for Jesus. Social power, sanctified by the grace of Christ, must be improved for winning souls to the Savior. It takes so much work, especially for some. It would be so much easier to amuse myself. I don't even have to go see you when I get my groceries anymore. If I wanted to, I could work from home, eat at home, worship at home, buy at home, entertain at home, and my home would never bless you, and my presence would not be a benefit to you. But every advantage we have is an indebtedness to those who have not. I was at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles this week. And I was sitting right next to the door. It's always a very busy place. There was someone standing out in the middle. I wasn't sure if it was a man or a woman. But they spoke to me. And I spoke back. The person had some form of disfiguring skin disease. And they smelled terrible. I'm sure the person had faced tons of social rejection. When the conversation started, she was probably 10 feet or so away from me, but of course, if you start a conversation with someone that takes a little interest in you, then you get closer. 
Pretty soon she was leaning on the aluminum frame of the door and my chair was parked about 18 inches away. And I purposely kept the conversation going, not for her, but for me. Because everything inside of me wanted to end it. And then I wouldn't have to see something unpleasant and smell something unpleasant. But I knew I needed to do this. Yes, I trust it was truly a grace-empowered conversation. And it made me feel kind of bad that inside of me, I didn't want to do it. It was no accident that she was there and I was there. It was a God-architected, God-engineered dynamic to show Ron some of the problems that Ron has. And it was an opportunity for me to press through my own personal discomfort for the sake of one who happened to be so poor, by the way, that she shared her coat with someone else and that someone else came and got her coat while I was in the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. And it was cold that day. How much transformation is in a love that would overcome, not summoned from within, but given from above, how much potential transformation is in somebody's day? Have you ever listened to any of those public service announcements on our radio station, WSFT 105.5? Tune into it. I almost know one of them by heart. I don't see Jim Nibel here. He was at first service. It's a young woman's voice. High schooler. What did I learn at school today? I learned that I'm stupid. That I'm fat. That nobody cares. The only thing I didn't learn today is why nobody will help. This message is for everyone who is old enough to understand the desire to fit in and the pain of rejection. This message is about the dreaded disease of formal religion. It's about its absence in the heart of the teenager and the 20-something and the middle-aged and the geriatric. It's about drawing lines of comfort when I should draw a bigger circle for somebody else at my discomfort. It's about forgiveness. I have to see what nobody else sees. I have to realize as I'm breathing in the tainted air that this person has probably dealt with a ton of rejection and it's very important that you give her something else. Love does not remake the facts. It simply rearranges them to where what is now is not the definer of what can be. You have to pass that way. You have to be intentional. You have to see what nobody else sees. And you have to offer people something that every human heart craves. And that is acceptance. 
They may be practicing all kinds of behaviors that will destroy them in the end. If they understand you love them, you'll have time enough to journey with them, and those things will be something they can decide about as to whether or not they want to keep them or let them go. But everybody needs to know that they're loved because they were made as a child of God. There's all kinds of social healing and all kinds of classes. Some people don't know they need it. Some people do. Have you ever thought about the Apostle Paul? From the consummate religious bigot and hater of people to the almost consummate lover. But think about his journey. From the days of Stephen when he held the coats and the big smile was on his face, we'll get him, we'll get him. We're going to stamp out this sect. He didn't want to put the stone dust on his fingertips, but he was willing to hold the coats. He'd do the highbrow work. He'd do the white collar work. Let all, everybody else who wasn't quite his culture throw the stones. I don't know how many people he threw in jail. I don't know how many people he caused to go through all kinds of pain and duress and even death. But I do know this. There were dozens of them who he could tell had something different than he had because he had the dreaded formalism. Finally, God stepped in and he told him the truth. The light so bright, the horse raises up. He falls to the ground. And now Paul is left in darkness. But look what God does. He's going to heal this man. He gives him three days. During that three days, there's all kinds of soul searching. You can be sure the dreaded formalism was being left behind as his young burgeoning career as, as a up-and-coming Sanhedrin member, maybe someday of the highest order. And he is now seeking a God who wouldn't let him lay down at night without being unsettled. Stephen's face would pop up. The faces of these other people. God loved him too much. He caught him on the road to Damascus, told him the truth, and then left him for a few days, not alone, but with only himself. And there was a dialogue that began. And somewhere along the way, the blindness led to seeing. And then God calls up a man by the name of Ananias, and he says, okay, <laughs> this man needs a different experience now. You go over there. And you bring him into the fold. And he says, me? Him? And it's so beautiful what Ananias does. You bet he was on a journey. God doesn't leave you where you're at. He stretches you out. He comforts you. He grows your faith. He makes you the consummate picture of health and wholeness when you have face time with him, when you actually know him, and the dreaded formalism is left behind. And when Ananias gets there, he says, Brother Paul... Don't miss it. But the church still doesn't really want him, and they're not sure about him, and that's when God says, somebody else. There's a man by the name of Barnabas. We know him as the son of encouragement. If Barnabas wouldn't have stepped in, we don't know what would become of Paul's ministry, but I know this. God sends people along to give us a chance to encourage us to move us to a different level. Somebody who cares and will suffer. Jesus suffered when he went to Zacchaeus' house. The elite just had one more reason not to deal with Jesus. 
And think about Paul. I really want to think about this. If there was anybody in the New Testament who could have suffered from post-traumatic stress syndrome, it was Paul. I mean, how many times do you get beat up and whipped and, and thrown in jail? And how many times are you betrayed by your own countrymen and live in the fear that you might be robbed in the day and ravaged in the night? And yet Paul writes most of the New Testament and there is healing in his messages. There's other kinds of social healing, personal emotional healing. There's healing from shame. There's a woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8. And as Jesus is, is dealing with her, he understands the full spectrum of healing that's needed. And as he writes in the dust, they all leave. She's waiting for the stones. Eventually, he looks her in the eye and she realizes somebody just saved my life. It's not a message of condemnation. Where are those that condemn you? They're gone. Neither do I condemn you. And it's a call to go forward in truth. How about racial healing? There's a hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. Maybe that's why the Samaritans figure so significantly. There's the woman at the well. There's the Syrophoenician woman who's even worse than the Samaritans. There's the good Samaritan. Jesus bridges the gap between race with the preeminence of his love and a knowledge that we share a common disease and can receive a common cure. And that's sin and that's he as the Savior. There's also healing for the proud and the arrogant and those who have a superiority complex. But it's a little bit different. Jesus tries to reach them in gentleness. When he heals the leper in, in Matthew chapter 8, he says, don't tell anybody. He charged him straightly. Don't talk about this. Why? Go show yourself to the priest. Because Jesus had two things in mind. Number one, he wanted to say to the priest, I'm not trying to work against you. And two, he didn't want their pride and prejudice to keep them from proclaiming him whole. Jesus is in the most fierce conversations in John chapter 8. But Jesus, whether it's the woes of Matthew chapter 23 or somewhere else, Jesus is looking for relational and emotional healing, even for the proud and the arrogant. How about for those that are evil thinking and gossips? If you're a pastor or a teacher, especially inside the church here today or an administrator, it's so important you hear what I'm about to say. And it's if you're a Christian, one of the reasons it's so hard to get together with the church is because when you leave here today, you're going to talk bad about somebody. You're going to gossip. You're going to reinforce. You're going to build the hurdle. You're going to lay blocks in the wall that would keep you from getting from here to there in a relationship because you're going to deepen the impression of your own mind. You're going to rehearse the offense. And if it was true, like Zacchaeus being a cheater, you get off scot-free, sort of, unless you're not in the dreaded formal relationship because the inconvenience of a living Christ is he's right there saying, you shouldn't talk like that. You shouldn't even think like that. 
But when you have a formal religion, the dreaded formal religion, you have no savior from that. Thus, the church can slowly lose its social altitude and eventually we can barely get together enough to pay our bills, let alone take on an age of darkness and dysfunction. It's absolutely critical that if I'm going to have a healing person and be a part of healing for someone else, that I follow 1 Corinthians 13 that says, love thinketh no evil. Ellen White will go on to say, love puts the best construct on somebody else's actions. It doesn't make the action okay, but it does mitigate what might have been the motivation, at least in your own mind. And if you find out otherwise, you have to forgive and deal and resolve and go on. And how about Matthew chapter 18? God is not willing to let us solve problems vicariously through somebody else. God is not willing for us to let things fester. You have a problem with someone, you're to see them face to face. Don't whip off a letter, don't send an email, don't send a text. Send a prayer and then go see the person. There's something about looking somebody in the eye, FaceTime. There's something about sitting across the table from them, and if it doesn't work, you're not off the hook. There's to be somebody else. And if it doesn't work, there's to be somebody's else. But how few people will follow this because in their private world, they only have the dreaded formal religion. And what it means is they reinforce their idea, unchecked and unchallenged, and compassion can die away, and empathy can die away, and then the bridge of connecting can't be rebuilt. But God gets in the picture and he says, no, we're going to have some face time. God, the real God, is both a comforter and a confronter to restore human relationships and to save us from imploding personally by mismanaging and misfiguring our Christian being. Three things. If you want to grow socially, number one, if you want to grow or help someone else grow, is you're going to have to love people. This is the higher law. You can keep the Ten Commandments, People have done it, bazillions, and not love anybody. You think you can keep them. It can look like you keep them. That's why Paul says, if you're living by the law of love, it'll take you way beyond those. The second thing that is involved in a healthy emotional self and in social growth is truth. But you can't skip the first to get to the second in order to get it off your chest. Without building somewhat of a bridge, you can't put much weight. There's a commitment in the heart of true Christians to each other and to the truth. We look back 
and we look in and we look up and then we try to help each other. We don't tell everything all at once. Jesus said many things I have to talk with you about, but you can't bear them now. But we don't resist and refuse the light and we don't hide, as it were, our faces from him or from each other. The third thing for emotional and social healing is forgiveness. So somebody disappointed you. Welcome to the world of humanity. So somebody in the church disappointed you. Welcome to the world of Christianity. You've disappointed somebody too. Jesus, when he says, if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive them. What a stark, ungracious thing to say, except for one thing. If you can be that blind to your own humanity, he's not okay with you carrying it forward into the lives of how you intersect with others. When Peter, a good friend of Jesus, goes backwards from associating with the likes of a Cornelius, he knows the important people from Jerusalem are coming up from the church and he no longer will socialize with the Gentile Christians. Paul confronts him in front of the whole church. Why? Because Peter is wounding every Gentile Christian by suggesting you are a second class family member. And Paul says, no. Did they love each other? Yes. Did the truth matter? Was a commitment to each other and the truth preeminent? Yes. Was the forgiveness offered? Yes. But I want to end thinking about Jesus. I want you to think about the social dynamics of God. In the beginning, God said, let what? What's, what's the pronoun? I, me, you, let what? Us. Let us. In that creation story, the Spirit is brooding over the waters. John chapter 1 tells us Jesus was the hands of the creation. There is this divine triune oneness. The, the Trinity actually becomes the quintessential, it is the ultimate expression of social connectedness. Three in one. Against that backdrop, we come up to Genesis chapter 2.18 and God sees Adam there in the garden after six fantastic days of rallying the atoms and the molecules into the existence of earth. And God sees Adam there all by himself and God says, it is not good for man to be what? Alone. This is, the, this is the God who is three in one, indivisible. This is the God who speaks and it exists. This is the Christ in whom all the creation consists. The Greek word really means in whom all the creation holds together. These bonds that knit Electrons and protons and neutrons into substance. This is all but a reflection of a God. It's not good that man should be alone. And it's not gotten any better. 
Eve is formed, but Eve was not the total summation of what that community would look like. Unfortunately, sin comes in, and Adam and Eve run into the recesses of the garden of the arboretum, and they hide behind the bushes because they can't see God naked. We come up to the life of Christ. Have you ever thought about the emotional spectrum of the life of Christ? If you're a child listening to me today, you need to know something. I want all the kids to hear real carefully. He wasn't the biggest. He wasn't the strongest. He wasn't the best looking. He wasn't the most popular. He didn't wear the best clothes. He didn't have the most money. What I'm telling you is he holds a very common journey of pain going through the process of developing into a man or a woman. He holds it in common with all of us at least with the 99% who can't be the queen or the king or the president. Yes, Jesus had all of those things, but he had one more thing that lots of kids here don't have, although if you're going to walk with Jesus, young people, you share a little bit of this too. Jesus was all, he was not any of those things, and he was one more thing. He was different. And boy, did he pay a price for it. People made fun of him. They ostracized him. They ridiculed him. They excluded him. Finally, he became a man. Think about that journey. His own brothers didn't understand him. There was a moment in time his own mother didn't understand and his own father. Jesus goes from being, he, they want to make him king after he feeds 5,000 to abandon him in mass when he says, unless you really enter into my experience by eating my flesh and drinking my blood. At one point in time, they're throwing palm leaves down in front of him and taking off their robes for the donkeys to walk on and saying, Hosanna, here he comes in the son of David. God himself in the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry, he rides to the peak of popularity only to be rejected by every single human being really except one. Jesus, the dynamic spectrum of Jesus' emotional journey more than encompasses every human heartache and discomfort and pain of every individual of all time in collective aggregate whole. Jesus is the distillation of all of our human heartache and social discomfort and pain and rejection. It's all there. He's God. He embraces it. One day he's king, and five days later he's being brutalized. He's rejected by his friends and his casual acquaintances. Now I want you to ask yourself this what was Jesus' love language? Let's move, let's move into the last 24 hours of Jesus' pre-crucifixion life. What was Jesus' love language? Acts of service, words of affirmation, receiving gifts, quality time, physical touch. Maybe it'd be safe to say that all of these were his in some measure. But if there was a preeminent one, which one would you choose? Which would stand out to you? Imagine if you were the ultimate giver You'll give away your lunch. You'll give away your sleep. You'll give away your private time to a point. Imagine if you'll give health, 
eyesight, auditory ability, walking ability, restoration of limbs, peace of mind. Imagine if you're a constant, consummate giver and you come up to the last great crisis of your life and you just need one thing. You just need for your, from your best friends if they would just stay awake long enough to put your name on their lips. And every time you lift your head from being sprawled out on the ground with those great drops of blood and you look over through the moonlight into the Garden of Gethsemane just a little bit away where they can't really hear your words but they can see you, you look over and they're all dead to the world, sleep. Imagine as the darkness is so great as if a great boulder is being rolled onto you which will more than crush you out. It will, it will grind you into non-existence. Imagine just wanting one thing. It's your love language and it will not be given you. It is neglect of the highest order from the people you should be able to expect something from. But he's abandoned by them after that. He is abused by the church, the institution, after that. He is betrayed by someone he actually loved. And he is denied even the basic modicum, the littlest slight indication that he would even be known by one of his best friends. Then he's abused by the state two times. And finally... He's hauled out to the place of crucifixion and there with no clothes on, he is pinned to a cross, hung up for people to mock and deride. And finally, after all of this forsakenness, even after being hid for three hours by the very presence of God, he can't sense his father's nearness and he cries out, God, when I need you, how come you're not here? You talk about the collective distillation. You talk about the concentration that can kill of social pain. It's Jesus. So how does a man who experiences so much in such a concentrated form come out of the experience so beautiful and so whole? And you say, well, it's because he was God. And I tell you, no. It's not because he was God. It's because he took advantage of what you and I can take advantage of to be connected as a man Amen. to God. Formal religion is to be dreaded for it is no savior. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. By his stripes we were healed and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Listen, friends, Jesus would have come to this earth just for you, but I've got information for you. Jesus still comes to this earth just for you. But you've said no, some. I hope many. It's not that you said, God, I, I reject you. It's just God... Don't be too hard on the disciples so they neglected Jesus. So do we. Do you think the remorse of Peter is any different than our remorse? When we realize what it caught, what it pained him? 
rejected in the garden, rejected on the cross. We hid our faces from him. The most painful words in all of scripture are Revelation 6.16, where people are saying, rocks and mountains fall on us and hide us from the what? Do you know? The face. Hide us from the face. Hear me, friends. Formal religion will leave this generation empty, bankrupt, and eternally lost. Real religion will lead you into places you don't want to go, to grow in ways you didn't know you could grow, and to come out on the other side able to help other people make the same journey and grow out of the consolation of your pain while you're growing. Real religion will prompt you to be the healer in a broken relationship, if you can be. Real religion will stretch you out as it comforts you and assures you of the divine presence. So who knew Jesus the best when he was alive? Who was it? I'll give you a clue. Who was the first to see his face on the resurrection morning? There she is at Simon's house. She didn't think things through very well. She, she would have frustrated me. And she frustrated everybody else except Jesus. She didn't think about the fact that she'd be a showstopper couldn't smell Sabbath dinner cooking anymore because there was this $1,000 perfume wafting through the air. And Judas looks at it and he says, what a waste, what a waste, what a waste. Yep, yep, yep. And it's not loud enough for Jesus to hear, or maybe it is. And everybody else lowers their head. Yep, yep, yep. He's going to die next Friday. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Seven demons, or seven times, maybe it was more than seven, but seven times the demons were expelled. And she found the only therapy, the only therapeutic healing was being as close to her dear Savior as she could be. And out of the pain of her suffering is, a, is the ultimate story in the scriptures of social and emotional healing, so much so to where nobody else gets it. And when I say nobody, I mean nobody. Her selfish ambitions were not wrapped around Jesus as her horse to ride to the top of the mountain. No, she didn't have to have him as a king with a crown. She could just have him as the king of her life, her heart, her emotions, her relationships, her hope, her happiness, her peace. It was enough. And that's why she got it. He's going to die. And I want to anoint him. And on Sunday morning, of all the people Jesus could have appeared to, the first one he shows his face to is a woman who at one point in time was the most broken person you could ever meet. But not anymore.
Why is she figure so prominently? I'm convinced she was the woman caught in adultery. I can't prove it. Because these 12 men, when they finally caught up with her or attempted to catch up with her emotionally, realized they should have done for Jesus what she did. If he knew who she was, Simon said, he wouldn't be letting her touch him. Good news, friends. He knew. And he knows you and he knows me. And you know what? He's just as willing to be misunderstood to connect with you as he was to connect with her. So don't be afraid to connect with someone else who needs what he wants to give through you. It's Christmas time. Start looking around for the socially wounded. Start looking around for the emotionally twisted, abused. Find a way to be the conduit that connects Christ and saves you in the process and the person from the dreaded formalism, which is no savior. Christ rose early every morning to meet with Jesus and he was, he was surcharged with more than enough to clean and heal and infuse hope and to suffer on my behalf and yours. Yes, friends, God is leading us on to home and victory and nothing has changed and nothing ever will. Love truth and forgiveness will continue to heal and transform and make us a community that is just so indescribably different. Press through the desert of disconnect. Take a risk. Pray and let Christ do for us so that we're different. We're not part of the 80% who looks worse than any generation on the face of the planet. May God empower you to know the living Christ and be an agent of social and emotional health and healing for the people you come in contact with. And you yourself will be transformed in the process. May God bless us as a church. May we have the face time that changes everything about who we are. Jesus can heal.